0: on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 103rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is an antidote to the great resignation. I'm joined by DDS Dobson Smith. He's the author of You Can Be Yourself Here, Your Pocket Guide to Creating Inclusive Workplaces by Using the Psychology of Belonging publisher is Lion Crest. DDS is the founder of the executive coaching consultancy Soul Trained and is certified as an executive coach by the Oxford School of Coaching and Mentoring. Prior to f- founding Soul Trained, DDS held senior roles at Marks & Spencer, Eurostar International, Sony Music Entertainment, and the ad agency WPP, for instance. Welcome to the show, DDS. Well, thank you. Thanks for that lovely intro, Dan. By all means. So uh, give us a, a sense of what the book's about, if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 book um really is uh, you know I, I wrote the book um with um chief HR officers, uh CEOs, uh senior leaders, founders in, in, of businesses in mind. Um Uh, really because of my own lived experience as a person in this world and my own lived experience of of working in the corporate world Um, and with an understanding that our need to belong uh, transcends geographies, genders, generations, and is a basic primal need. And that if we were able to create workplaces in which people feel like they belong, places where they can show up and be themselves, then magic will happen. Then, then, then people will, um, will perform better, will relate better, will enjoy their work better. No, I
1: I love that premise. I think it is universal. In my case, for instance, we're going to get into your experiences here in a moment. But uh, my family moved to Italy when I was a six-year-old boy, so Mm. I didn't readily belong there. And when I came back two years later, as far as my classmates were concerned, they looked at my Italian-cut clothing and thought I didn't belong there either. So um, (laughs) uh, I've been there. So let's talk about your lived experiences, because pretty early in the book, you you mention uh, code switching. Yeah. And if you're if you're willing to, I'd, I'd love to hear a couple of seminal experiences you've had in that light, and or anything you want to add in that other people have shared with you, because I'm sure you've had a lot of uh, very candid and, and compelling conversations on this topic over the years.
0: Yeah, indeed, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, um, and. Yeah, you know, I I as as you said in my introduction, you know, I've had a 25-year a career before I started Soul Trained, a 25-year career in various learning and development, HR, org dev, org site roles, all the way up to board and C-suite level. And um I know I'm not alone in, in this experience, but I, I have been told time and again to tone it down, um, which is a very coded message um that that really means could could you please act in a heteronormative way and and that's been you know i've received those messages time and time again directly to you know uh, verbally from bosses or you know i've i've received those messages via the media or the news on but it wasn't really until I was in a C-suite level position and, um, and another fellow C-suite member said to me, you know, maybe you could just tone it down for this meeting and, and something in me (laughs) snapped (laughs) And (laughs) and, and I looked at them and I said, what do you mean by tone it down? And they said to me, you know, could you just be a little bit less gay? And I looked at them and I said, well, how about you be a little bit less straight? And they said to me, I, "I I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do that." And I said, "Exactly." And, <laughs> yeah. and I thought to myself, "If it's taken twenty five years, and it, and it's taken me to be in a position of quite you know a quite senior position as a as a chief learning and culture officer to find the courage to be able to say that, then." I I can only imagine what that must be like for countless other people and I and I know I'm not alone right like I know oh, absolutely I know yeah. that there are there are there are people that are born into black and brown bodies that that go into the workplace and ask themselves the question what kind of black person can I be today how asian can I be how muslim can I be S- single parents are they allowed to talk about um you know their single parenthood or their need to go home to pick up the kids from school all of that stuff is code switching or covering as you know covering up aspects of our life so that we can belong so that we can fit in
1: sure no i knew a very famous celebrity who you know i guess the term is bearding so he made sure that he brought you know a woman along as his companion for certain very public events and, um, you know, there's all these instances where you, you can't be yourself. I mean, it's hard for me to hear tone it down and not think they're basically saying, please be yourself a little bit less. Yeah,
0: please, <laughs> or, please or... be yourself, but not quite.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe 75%, maybe 48%. Yeah. Well, just just down the road here from where I live in California is, is – um, palm springs and Ooh. uh because of the nature of the community we do hear reports and you know they're really powerful statistics regarding just how much uh this need to code switch and this uh still this considerable struggle for acceptance means uh lower employment rates yep. more suicide yep um to, you know on and on you you would know all those statistics better than i would but yep. um it, it's a, it, it, there is a very large community, and there's a very large need for for people to be more accepting. Um, maybe my next question here is: uh, you also mentioned a term that you know is is out there uh, microaggress- micro, microaggressions rather. Um, do you want to talk about those? I mean, I would take tone it down; is already mm-hmm. bordering on that at a minimum. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, some other instances because I'm hoping we can raise people's awareness uh, of these things happening.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, microaggressions, it it's it's they they I've often wondered why they were called microaggressions because actually they feel like macroaggressions. So <laughs> true, true. I, you know, yes. tone it down, be someone other than you are, um or, you know, comments comments like um you know, comments like, "Oh, you you seem really intelligent." for a dot dot insert word or um or for just those those comments that 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 are that are so harmful and so damaging and that are either race-based or gender-based or basically based in difference identifying difference and um particularly for anybody that has an aspect of their identity that doesn't come from the the social the, the the socially dominant group. So, male, white, straight, cisgender, non-disabled. Um, uh, if if you any any comments that are related to someone's identity feel to that person um, deep and and harmful and, and, and problematic. So why call them micro versus macro? And, you know, as you, as you, as you dig into the theory and and the kind of the etiology of the phrase called micro, because they happen so regularly um, that they are, and, and um, that sometimes they almost feel invisible to the person that's saying them but they feel really, really heavy and harmful to the person that's receiving them.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I I guess I equate it to a a switchblade between the, you know, ribcage. It's (laughs) just as lethal as a machine gun, Um, you know, same outcome. Yeah. So so you mentioned the the C-suite and we're talking about differences here. I mean, Uh, You know, I I wrote a book called blah, 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 or actually co-wrote with a bunch of people. And uh, for diversity, the uh, snarky expression or definition we used was uh, in senior management, a short white guy. And, um, you know, it, it can be like that sometimes. So Talk me through this because, you know, I would like to think that uh, they can see where we're headed and it's it's into a broader circles of acceptance, however slowly this might be happening. But but I have a concern that a lot of executives, more than I, I wish, don't have what I guess I'd call a genuine appetite for cultural transformation. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? Am I right? I mean, where, where do things stand from your perspective?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think... The, the, problem, the problem that we're facing is that there is a huge amount of investment in the systems and processes and institutions that are um, upholding um, upholding the social dominance of identities that are white, straight, male, cisgender, able-bodied. And so... Any conversation that involves um, changing that, um, any conversation that involves challenging that comes with the notion of someone having to give up power. And the giving up of power is the thing that that, that stops people from wanting to have these conversations. Yeah. The other thing that stops people from wanting to have these conversations is this idea of, um, you know, I, I don't want to be wrong, or uh, you can't say anything these days without it upsetting someone. And I think the point is that that's absolutely bloody true, right? <laughs> yes, it is true. You you can't have these conversations if you're not willing to be wrong. Because the point is that at some point, somewhere, when we learn new skills, when we learn new behaviors, when we learn new outlooks and new perspectives, that means that what has happened before is no longer true and no longer correct. And therefore we've got to be willing to be wrong. We've gotta be willing to make mistakes. Um, I think it was the great poet Naomi Campbell that once said, Look, you've got to be willing to make mistakes. It's the way the world works. It's the way we learn yeah. and grow. Um, and so, I I agree with you that the appetite for for transformation, for change in this area, can be it is is low. It's higher than it has ever been, but it's still it's still not where it needs to be. Um, yeah. Yeah,
1: no, because uh, it, it strikes me you, so often you will – I will read or in interviews see executives saying they they need their employees to change. They need to – they're telling the employees they have to grow and develop, and I'm thinking, huh, I think in a lot of cases you're actually choosing your own comfort level, uh, your comfort zone as an executive, but you're asking others to get out of theirs, and that's a contradiction I'm not sure they see. I couldn't agree more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would have loved to have been wrong, but uh, that was my suspicion that that's how, how things look. One of the, the real delights for me in the book um, was that you mentioned John Balby's attachment theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember reading about that on back in the day when they still had magazines on airplanes, and <laughs> there was a special issue uh, in Newsweek about childhood development. And I read that, and I just thought it was so clarifying. But I suspect a lot of listeners have never heard of the the attachment theory. Can you uh, walk us through it? And then maybe it's application to, to business if you don't mind.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, attachment, thi- a, a, attachment theory was, um, and still is one of the most prominent, um, additions to our understanding of the human psyche. Um, and the, um, the, the a, our human need for relationship, um, to, to come into the world of psychology, it was it was really uh, paradigm altering, um, and you know John Bowlby um, is one name, but I also want to credit the women behind the work as well, which is Mary Main and Sheila Ainsworth, um, and um, it really talks about as a young child how our need for nurture and relationship is a biological imperative and how that at a very young age we learn how to relate to others based on the way in which we relate to our primary caregivers now back in the day you know in the in the in the 60s 70s when Bowlby and Ainsworth and Mary Main were really when this theory was starting to be developed of course we were talking about the relationship between the child and the mother um super heteronormative. Lots of children, you know, do bond group <laughs> mothers, but there are also I think, you know, when we think about um uh, blended families these days and we think about non-traditional families, um, then I, I really like to think about attachment theory being centered around primary caregiver rather than mother.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a good way to reframe it. The the uh, relationship to to business, do you do you see one readily? Um well, yeah, said, I mean, yeah.
0: You know, because we are, you know, no person is an island, right? And yep. we are, we are, we are, we are beings who like to relate to each other, and um, and so in the world of work, uh, there, there are some really important, um, I guess, uh, aspects of uh, attachment theory that include. Separation anxiety um, include uh, the the requirement for a secure base, and so this idea that attachment, this this, uh, our attachment style that we develop as a as a child, becomes a template for the way in which we relate to in, in our adult life, whether that's to our intimate partner or partners or to our friends or to our colleagues and so the i i I talk a lot in the book about how these fundamentals from attachment theory can relate to the world of work and and what organizations can do to promote good relate relationships Sure. No.
1: Well, going back to no man is an island. I remember Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane quipping that uh, no man is an island. He's a peninsula. Um, We, but we are all attached. And um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is you know when you talked about a primary caregiver. um, You know, certainly when I was in the workplace and had a manager, (laughs) that person may not have been a caregiver, but they sure were central to how that universe was going to work for me. And uh, the the, uh, maybe remote parent uh, was the executive who certainly helped to shape the the company culture. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I I think all of those patterns that we have early in life, we've got to tread those all over again with other people become, you know, central because we spend a lot of time at work. It becomes very central to our – are being there. Do you want to say anything more about its application work? I also wanted to bring in, you know, you, you have a, um, in that same part of the book, you're talking about the four components of empathy. So maybe we could roll it out into, into that
0: aspect as well. Yeah, sure. Where, where would you like to go with that? Well,
1: I mean, you, 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 you mentioned, um, you know, that there were business applications you could see on the attachment theory. For me, you know, if one is raised in a way that one is avoidant, for instance, the most extreme version of mm-hmm. separation anxiety, where you essentially give up, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, we do have workers who give up. They may stay around for a while, be floating ghosts in the workplace, uh, and then eventually they leave. So it has retention issues, but it also has engagement issues. Yeah, And it strikes me a lot of managers are not really up to the task. We talk about executives not uh, managing to grow necessarily. I saw a statistic once that said maybe only 12% of managers are really emotionally uh, literate, capable in the job. in your trainings, teachings, have you uh, tried to bring attachment theory and empathy forward? What do you have found most yeah. effective with with managers? I guess, maybe that's the, the question I, I'm slowly gliding to.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dan. I, I mean, I think what's really interesting is you, we're starting to touch on on actually what the title of my second book is, which is due out in September, and which really focuses on leadership and management. And the, the book's called Leadership as a Behavior and Not a Title. Um, and, um, and so I think in, in really in this space, I I mean, I've, I've read a recent report that, that, um, Deloitte did, um, in the late, the, the late, I think 2018, something like that, in, in which they surveyed people who were direct reports about the quality of the management they received. And found that eighty two percent of people surveyed said that their manager did not display a great de- a great degree of skill in managing them, so eighteen percent of managers do not lead well um and and then we see America uh, in particular that invests billions of dollars each year in leadership development. And it's and we're like, well, where's the ROI? Um, <laughs> yeah. And there's so leadership development is failing in 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 the world, um, and it's it's not delivering what we want it to deliver. And there's a there's I picked a, a beautiful quote from a guy called Javier Pladabal, who's the C was the CEO of Volkswagen um, Volkswagen Spain, who said that management today, sorry, leadership today is about unlearning management and relearning being human and 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 really thinking about bringing humanity back into leadership um and and um, and what does it you know a, an aspect of being human and or or having humanity is that ability to is that ability to lead with empathy um and you know empathy is not a new thing around the block you know brene brown um you know adore her and and her work is just so meaningful um, but I really wanna I, I really wanna think about and in the book I talk about aspect the the four components of of empathy, um and how those four components of empathy are going to be able to drive this culture of um of belonging and that and those four those four components being the ability to assume positive intent, yep, ability to give other people the benefit of the doubt. The ability to meet people where they are at, and the ability to listen with the intent to understand rather than the intent to reply. So empathy um, is a is a developable skill. And you know, imagine it. Just imagine what it would be like if you were surrounded by people that automatically assumed your positive intent, that automatically gave you the benefit of the doubt. That met you where 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 you were at, and that wanted to wanted to listen to you.
1: Imagine, yeah. imagine no, without that, telling you to turn it down. Yes,
0: without telling you to tone it down, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best—it's possible
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, when I think about uh, business schools, I, you know, it seems to me that, uh, uh, you know, empathy is is probably not on the curriculum. I, I just have to suspect uh, that it gets short shrift if it gets anything at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite.
1: There, There's another thing that I thought was really timely in the book, talking about value systems and there being a moral compass. And I guess in part... Because I'm, I'm watching Zelensky in Ukraine do such a remarkable job yeah. trying to frame what this is all about on the deepest level and urging, for instance, as part of the sanctions, Western companies to value values over profits.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, you know, just this book seems to me to have eternal truth to it and it has timeliness to it mm. uh, as well. Thank you. Thank you. I assume you, you've also probably noticed, uh, Francis Haugen, she's the the Facebook whistleblower who, you know, lamented when profits were ahead of people. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you, you must've had your own perspective as you took that in and thought it back on your comments in the book on value systems.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, when I, when I think about values uh, that, a, a you know, a company has values, we, we all have values and, um, the, our values are the unconsciously held criteria by which we judge good and bad right and wrong they're they're the source of our motivation and they govern our behavior so yep. if that's true for an individual that's also true for an organization so when you have a set of values um they will drive the organizational climate they'll drive the organizational behavior and so if you're if you're wanting to create a certain, type of organization a a certain type a certain vibe at your organization then look no further than your value systems and um and you know this idea of people over profit now of course to a you know to the capitalist system people over profit sounds like a socialist ideal but actually there is there is there is there was a piece of research done um Way back, it's called the Sears Value Profit Chain that demonstrated a very clear link between the satisfaction of your people and the profitability of your organization. So I'm not saying that profit doesn't matter in an organization. I'm saying that if you focus on creating a climate where your, where your people can succeed, where they can belong, and where they can find meaning and purpose in their work, then you will be a profitable business. It, it is as simple as that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you go back to Adam Smith, I mean, everyone knows Wealth of Nations, and you know he's the, the father of capitalism and all that. Well, he, of course, he also wrote a book on moral sentiments and, and made the very point that you're making, that there have to be checks on behavior, and one of them is the feedback loop of actually satisfying and helping grow the people around us. Yes. And yep. um, yeah, it's, just, it's just so important. Speaking of giving people the chance to grow, I really liked also the stuff about employee r- resource groups and oh, yeah. particularly making the very practical point that you're going to need a budget. You're going to need some time. You're going to probably need a, a executive to champion it. Yep. Can you talk a bit about that, including any particularly robust, positive examples of this in action that maybe can help uh, uh, encourage people?
0: Yeah, I mean, when I think about employee resource groups, um, I, I also like to call them employee community groups um, because they are—they serve a multi multitude of purposes. Right? They are not only are they a place where people of different identities can gather amongst people who are like them, but they—they they also serve as a mechanism through which. Um, People who are outside of that community can receive education and information about about that community. It's a it's a way of increasing awareness. Now, the number one thing, the the, the number one thing that I think is really important about employee community groups um, is, you know, in in this in this life, um, I I, I want to state very very clearly, it is it is not the job of an underrepresented group to educate the members of the overrepresented group about their experience. And so often we will find that a white person will want a black or brown or indigenous person to teach them about their experience or a straight person will ask a queer person to teach them about their experience. Now, that's what Google is for, people. <laughs> right? that's, that's just you know, read a book, watch a TED Talk, listen to a podcast, but do not go and expect your brown friend to teach you about the experience of all brown people. That's just not okay. And I would say what is also not okay is when an organization, I think it's great when organizations will put together employee resource groups or employee community groups and support them and give them a budget and give them an executive sponsor. But there will always be one or two people in those employee resource groups that basically have two jobs. They have the job that they're being paid to do under employment contract, and they have yeah. a job they that they have... You know, either been voluntold to do or have volunteered <laughs> to do yeah. to lead that employee resource group. Now, those people need paying because otherwise we're we are we are we are further oppressing, further marginalizing people who already have excluded identities by making them perform free emotional labor. Oh, I, I
1: totally agree. That's a wonderful point, and I, I like the term "emotional labor," which I'm very aware of. But uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of it in this kind of role. Yeah. Good. One last question before we run out of time. Um, We obviously live in a very polarized society. Maybe this is my most difficult and unanswerable question, but uh, blue states, red states trying to move these conversations forward. They're already tough in the executive suite. Uh, I have to imagine they're even tougher in certain sectors Mm -hmm. or certain parts of the country. Uh, But surely and hopefully your training opportunities get to be lots of places. Uh, anything or you can point to positively where you you made a breakthrough where you just didn't expect it, and and maybe how you got there.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I come from the place, Dan, that who, whoever you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you believe, no matter who you voted for, you deserve to belong. Yeah, and 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 so this book and my perspective is 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 not is not political it's not about right it's not about making um anyone wrong um it, it's about recognizing that we all we all deserve to belong now of course you can't have these conversations without without recognizing the institutional um isms that uh, that are caused by the systems that we live in but i start from a place of Let's have a conversation about belonging and that every, and, and, and that everyone deserves to belong. And I think when, 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 when I, at least in my experience, when I've started from that place, everybody will come to the table and have a conversation. And it doesn't have to be about liberal versus conservative. It doesn't have to be about red versus blue, Tory versus conservative, Republican versus, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be about that. Um, and, and as soon as it, my worry is that when we take it into that place, it shuts the conversation down.
1: Sure. And it's hard to get back out of that, that paradigm. Yep.
0: Right. That
1: said though, I guess maybe my real point in the question was, and I maybe didn't say it artfully enough, maybe a, a, a nice, uh, encouraging, illuminating instance where you, you did get a breakthrough where maybe it didn't seem possible whatever the circumstances and maybe how you, how you got there, maybe some comments, some exercise in the training, some moment in a, a back and forth conversation that just, you saw a light go on basically. You, you made progress when you maybe didn't think you were going to see it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do have many examples of that and, and I would be, I would be breaking the, uh, the confidentiality agreements that I have with my clients, and and of course, I, okay, I run to to, to pinpoint, um, to pinpoint any, but there there is that you know there are there are. I mean, I, I there, yeah. It,
1: it, I, without, all right. I'm not, without, not without, to put you on the spot.
0: I don't want to plug my book too much, but if if you <laughs> if you go on to if you go on to the Amazon site for my book, you'll see that there are a couple of people on there that have reviewed the book and have been very open in talking about their experience of working with me and how it has shifted them. And you know, there's a couple of. Older white straight male CEOs that talk about their experience um, and and how things have shifted. So, you know, there's there's some examples there, but there there are there are many. And and um, like I say, I I I want to honor and protect the sanctuary of the work that we have done by you know not outing anyone in particular.
1: Oh, no, that's perfectly fair and fine. I guess I was just trying to go out on a, a high note of I know. some marks I really of uh, progress made. <laughs> but uh, anyway, th- this has been episode 103, An Antidote to the Great Resignation. Which we didn't really get around to, but I, I think from our previous conversation, I, I would agree with you that the Great Resignation is often about the, the great realization of our own value system, what matters to us, and how we want to live our lives, and yeah. what career choices we're going to make accordingly. Uh, my guest, once again, DDS Dobson-Smith. He is the author of You Can Be Yourself Here. Your pocket guide to creating creative, inclusive, creating inclusive workplaces by using the psychology of belonging. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network, typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and the other 100 plus episodes will be evident there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram, uh, something pertinent. In this case, you got my attention, something. Said by Voltaire, appreciation is a wonderful thing. It makes what is excellent in others belong to us as well. Speaking of a larger, more inclusive spirit. Until next time, take care, be well. Thank you so much, DDS, for being my guest here today. Thank you.